Hey, all right, so uh, we're going to jump right in. Last week, if you were here, uh, we talked about fear, and I mentioned anxiety. Last week's message was not about anxiety, but I sort of brought it into play as we talked about fear of man. This week, anxiety is going to be a little bit more front and center. And uh, I found experientially by teaching over the years that anxious people get very anxious when I talk about anxiety. Um, It's just a weird thing that happens. And uh, I want to go ahead and try to allay some concern or fear or anxiety uh, by just sort of setting the parameters of what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. Okay, Uh, I'm, I'm not in this message, I think, offering comprehensive explanations of anxiety. I'm not uh, necessarily trying to discover every root cause or offer an ultimate cure for all causes of anxiety. Um, But I do want to tease out some questions and and, and talk frankly about anxiety and fear. And uh, the first question I want to raise is the same one I asked last week. Does it really have to be this way? Do we have to live the anxious lives that we live? But I also want to ask a second question as we get started. This is sort of a hypothetical. Imagine anxiety as most of us experience it, as a particularly naughty knot. Not just one string, but like four or five. It's like, it's like your mom's knitting yarn drawer. Everything's just thrown together. And there's five different threads all knotted together. And it's your job to sort it out. I think that's actually not a bad picture of what anxiety is for many of us. But what if, in that naughty knot, for most of us, there's one particularly long thread that's particularly knotty, on which almost all the other knots hang? What if that string is straightened, or cut, or untangled? What if there is something fundamental, large, maybe even basic, deep down in us, that can be touched, I don't want to use the word cured, but set free in a way that will help us live differently? Is that possible? Can we hope for that? Do something a little different tonight. If you're a person of habit... The way I go about the text and the message tonight may trouble you. I'm letting you know. I'm going to do things a little differently. I'm going to pray first and not read. And then I'm going to read. And then I'm going to tell a story. Then I'm going to read some more. So for some of you, it may blow your mind for the third time. But I'm pretty sure you can handle it. So um, let's pray. And then we'll start to jump into the text. Father, we pray that as we come to your word uh, today, you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts. Uh, we, We... address a topic today that's not only near to our hearts, but uh, often troubling and haunting and distressing. And uh, frankly, all of us have trouble imagining what life would be like without it. Some of us aren't aware of its presence and what it does to us. Uh, We pray, Lord, you would help us see that, but better yet, help us to see you and grant us the faith in you, uh, the faith that this text calls for. That would allow us to live different kinds of lives. Uh, help me in my weakness. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So tonight, I'm going to let Jesus give the introductory story. We're in Luke chapter 12. We're going to jump into a story in verse 13. 
There it is. So this is our little introductory story. Here you go. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, Well, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Stop. Stop right here. The story stopped right here. What will we call this story? I think we could call this story a couple things. We could call this story the American dream. Seriously. Got land. It does what it's supposed to. It produces bountifully. I'm able to reserve it all, save it up, retire early, enjoy it. Uh, The American dream. We might call this the good life. The ability to actually sit down and say, man, I did my work. My work was good. My work is done. Now I can enjoy it. This is... This is what some of you would call your idealized future. This is what you're working to. Jesus calls it something else because of how it ends. Verse 20, 21. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Uh, What Jesus would call this is a cautionary tale. Or for some of us, a wake-up call. What Jesus is telling us in this story, what he's going to go on to tell us in the next couple passages is, that by nature we all have hearts, and we live in a world economy, and I'm not speaking strictly of a financial economy, I'm talking about an atmosphere. We live in a world economy, both of those, the heart and the economy, driven by engines of fear that move us to invest our very lives in the search for and acquisition of success and its many promised benefits. Yes, stuff, but also esteem, reputation, the security that comes with all that. And Jesus is warning here that you can live this life, you can do all those things successfully, And at the end, you can come up completely, totally, personally bankrupt. You get nothing. That's what that story says. And it's worse. That this way of living, which we think is the good life, is actually a slow dying. From the inside out, A kind of living that makes us poor while we seek to get rich. That wears us out as we seek comfort and peace. That makes us anxious and afraid as we seek security. Jesus is saying we unwittingly invest our lives in a way of life that will ultimately bring us to death. 
And that we'll find in the end that this life we've been pursuing has actually been killing us all along. Pretty heavy stuff, right? Does that scare any of you? What I just said? Does it scare any of you? Anybody? You should all be afraid. I'm serious. You should all be afraid. Because never before has a group of people lived in a place where this story is more plausible and more possible than us right now. It's true. So, you may not buy that. It's my job to convince you of that. I'm going to do my best to scare you. But I don't want you to be afraid. So I'll give you hope later. But Jesus will, not me. All right. So um, the main point here, I'm not just trying to scare you. I want us to to have hope. And so what I want us to remember when we walk away tonight is uh, we're called in this text to take care of our hearts by resting in the care of the Father. And as Drake advised, take care. Jesus said it first, verse 15. Verse 15. Jesus said it first. He said, take care. But there's a couple different ways here that Jesus is warning us to take care. Look, I'm not... He said it, not me. He said, take care. See that? Jesus is calling us in this text to take care of the world, to take care of our hearts, and to consider the care of the Father. So let's jump in to take care of the world. And uh, here we're just talking about the story we just read, along with a few verses a little bit later on. But Jesus here warns in verse 15, take care. Uh, and he's here, when I say take care of the world, he's not, taking, he's not saying take care of the world. He does mention that later in verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the poor. But that's not what he means at this point. Jesus here in saying take care makes this point really clear when he says in the same verse, Be on your guard. See that? Be on your guard. This is a take care, beware. Take care of yourself. Watch out. Take care of the world. Jesus is saying, be on your guard because there's something out there coming for you. It will sneak up on you. And he tells you what that is. All covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Jesus is saying, you have to watch out for covetousness. Now, it's a word you almost never hear. And Jesus is here is talking about the human heart's inordinate longing, not just for stuff, but for more and more stuff, for an ever never-ending list of stuff. My stuff, your stuff, and everyone else's stuff. My wife and your wife and everyone. There's no end to the heart's wanting, but we'll talk about that later. Not just the out-of-control longings of the heart, but also This idea, this conviction that Jesus will let her say in verse 30, that the whole world shares that life is about what you get, about the abundance of your possessions, that all the nations seek after these things, that there's a belief, a conviction, a way of living your life that encourages you to invest 100%, all of you, heart, mind, and soul, in your success, because you believe this is what's going to deliver you the goods, the real life. Jesus says, watch out and beware of that. Again, verse 30 says, all the nations are seeking this. This is the way of the world. This is the way each one of us, if we've been born into the world, and I think you all were, you were born into what one theologian called an anxious economy. 
I'm not talking about a, a, a particular economic system like socialism or capitalism. Just the reality that no matter where you are in the world, you grow up in an anxious environment where people are striving for success and acquisition in order to find the good life of life, joy, and peace. That we imbibe that deep within ourselves. We accept that this is what life's all about, that this is the way of life, and we have to do this well in order to win it. Jesus says really clearly life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. You see that up there, right? And so you might be thinking, like, well, almost no one I know would say life consists in the abundance of possessions. Everyone would agree that life is more than that, except for some crass materialists. How many of you actually know someone who would say, like, it's just all about what you get? There are very few people that would actually say that. There might be a few crass materialists. But how many people do you know that live like this? Almost everyone. Why? Because they do believe it. They live like this because, deep down, they do believe it. There's a beautiful movie made about five or six years ago called The Tree of Life. No one saw it but me. feels like that anyway. Anybody in this room see Tree of Life? Yeah. Did you like it? That's what I figured. <laughs> All right. That's actually what most people say. Um, in it, Brad Pitt uh, brilliantly plays this middle-aged father who's brilliant and ambitious and complicated and frustrated and angry. He's got three beautiful boys and a, and a, and a really sweet, gracious wife. And one scene in the movie finds him uh, in his garden. He's uh, picking away at plants that have been eaten by pests as his older boy watches. His older boy, Jack, is, like every older son, always carefully, uh, conscientiously watching his daddy. Just a moment later, as uh, this father figure walks around throughout the city, you, you hear him thinking, and this is what he's thinking, I wanted to be loved because I was great. A big man. I'm nothing. Look at the glory around us, trees and birds. But I lived in shame. I dishonored it all. I didn't notice the glory. And as he then walks into his home to, to meet his wife, the last words that he thinks is, I've been a foolish man. He turns to his wife and says, They're closing the plant. They gave me a choice. No job or transfer to a job that no one wants. So here's an ambitious man that spent his whole life trying to be great. He had to settle for a job he never liked. He was constantly frustrated. And now that over half his life is gone, even that's taken away. And he looks back at the loss and says, All the beautiful, glorious things I always had, I took for granted. I strove after these things. And what do I have? Nothing. I'm a foolish man. He's got the exact same kind of life this guy has. It looks different, but both of them end up the same. Foolish men. You know anybody like that? Do you know anyone like that? Family members like that? I do.
sorry. Uh, grief sabotages. I just got sabotaged. Okay, I'm good. So no one sets out to foolishly waste their life. No one. Uh, but you're carried along by your heart's desires and longings, by, by the, the flow of the world that's constantly trying to convince you that you must live this way, that you must keep up the anxious economy of the world. And I just want to ask you this simple question. Do you know, this is the important word, why you're doing what you're doing? I know you know what you're doing, but why are you doing what you're doing? Do you know why you're doing it? Is it because you believe that you must do something important in order to be someone important, in order to have what's important, esteem, wealth, security, so that you can be happy and secure and loved and at peace? Because if that's what's driving you, Jesus says, take care. It's a big fat lie. And then the rest of our text that we're going to read, Jesus works this out. He's going to go two ways. Deep into our hearts to show us what's there, but into the heart of the Father to show us something much, much better. So I'm going to read a few more verses, follow along as I do so, and uh, we'll move quickly. Let's pick up in verse 22. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If you then are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavenlies, in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. All right, so uh, moving in quickly here. Uh, Jesus is going to warn us right here at the beginning to take care of our hearts. And uh, he does that by telling them, don't be anxious about your life. And it's possible that someone in the room at this point is saying, well, that's easy for you to say. Well, first of all, I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Uh, Second of all, it's not easy for him to say, actually. It's not easy for him at all. Earlier in the story, someone comes to Jesus and says, hey, wait. I'll follow you. And he says, actually, you should think about that. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. I, the Son of Man, have nowhere to lay my head. Jesus has no home. Most of the times he doesn't know where his next meal is coming from. No. Not easy for him. This man knows he's going to die soon. Painfully and shamefully. Not easy for him to say. But good. It's a good thing for him to say. And a good thing for us to hear. 
So, um, what then? I have completely lost my place. Uh, do we need to hear? Uh, what does it look like for us to take care of our hearts? What does that mean? I think it means we need to know some things about our hearts. We need to know that our hearts have already been broken. Uh, Jesus talks about this, or alludes to this, some in verse 34. Uh, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Um, Jesus is saying something very important about your heart, which a friend of mine's called the wanter. Also, Selena Gomez calls it the wanter. Uh, you know, heart wants what it wants. So, um, oh, it's okay. Uh, I'll just keep going. And um, what you need to know about your heart is God constructed you as a creature in such a way that your heart was made to find ultimate satisfaction, peace, and joy in a perfect relationship with Him, with others, and with the creation and the work that you did in the world. All those things were supposed to work in perfect harmony in such a way that gave you ultimate peace and joy. Your heart, in other words, was made for a big world that fit together well. That's what your heart was made for. Ultimate satisfaction is found there. What you need to know is that world doesn't exist anymore. We lost that thing a long time ago. That world is gone. It was ruined by our first parents. Sin and shame have entered in. Our work is frustrating. Our relationships with each other are frustrating. Our relationship with God is distant and hard. And what you need to know is our longing for ultimate satisfaction has not gone away. We're still desperately seeking peace and love and joy and ultimate satisfaction. You are not going to find it in anything in this world. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. It's lost, it's gone, and you should mourn. It's just the way it is. You're longing for a world that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, An old theologian put it this way, You may as well try to make an elephant happy by feeding him a grain of sand a day. as try to satisfy your own heart with rank, riches, learning, idleness, or pleasure. That's the nature of our hearts. Huge wanters. For a world that no longer exists. And it's a heart that's still broken. It was broken in the past, it's still broken. It, it wants things inordinately. Jesus goes to great lengths in verses 22 and 23 and 29 to say, Our hearts anxiously long after and worry about food and clothing and drink, and it seeks ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world. And uh, we, we busily, busily, anxiously, worrisome, in a worrisome manner, pursue these things as though the acquisition and retainment of them will deliver us ultimate peace and joy. And, and Jesus says very clearly in verse 23, Don't you know that your life is more than that? That life is more than just food and clothes. Yeah, you need those things. But your Father knows you need those things. Even if you had them all, you would not be content. Life is more than just the stuff you do and the stuff you eat and the stuff you wear. Your heart was made for something bigger than that, and yet your heart is dumb enough to think that will give you joy. Your heart's broken. It's seeking joy and ultimate satisfaction in things that won't deliver. And one of the places we really see that is in our anxiety. This is a don't hear what I'm not saying moment. Not all anxiety is the same in degree or type. But Jesus here is saying that many Perhaps most people have at least a form of anxiety where we are worrying in such a way that we we think if we just work hard enough and seek hard enough and pull everything together a little bit more that we'll actually get the things we want and it'll deliver us the life we want. And Jesus in verse 25 and 26 says, 
Little thought experiment here, folks. Little, little, little poll. How many of you, by worrying, can add 60 minutes to your life? Anybody? You, can you worry enough to add just 60 blasted minutes to your life? Anybody? No. No one. No one, of course. No one ever, by worrying, can add one minute to their life. Jesus here is pointing out the vanity, the, the ultimate worthlessness of anxiety. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not beating anyone up, or even myself, in this particular situation. But Jesus is saying, because I've heard some of you talk about anxiety and your worry and your stress as though it's a good thing, like a shot of caffeine to get you through the night. No, it does not make you perform better. No, it sucks your life. It eats you alive from the inside out. It cannot add one blasted moment to your life or one more point to your grade. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Uh, Great poem by Shel Silverstein, the great philosopher. Uh, He was a children's poet. He's dead now. But um, that's actually... That's actually what this is all about. Uh, Soaps that will sanitize, sprays to deodorize, liquids to neutralize acids and pesticides, free weights to maximize your strength and muscle size, shots that will immunize, pills to re-energize. Remember that for all your pain and gain, eventually the story ends the same. You can quit smoking, you're still going to die. Cut out coking, you're still going to die. Eliminate everything fatty or fried, get real healthy, you're still going to die. Stop drinking booze, you're still going to die. Stay away from coos, you're still going to die. Cut out coffee and never get high, you're still going to, still going to, you're still going to die. You're still going to, still going to, still going to die. Still going to, still going to, still going to die. You can even give aerobics one more try. When the music stops playing, you're still going to die. Put seatbelts in your car, you're still going to die. Put Cut nicotine tar, you're still going to die. Exercise that cellulite off your thigh. Get slimmer and trimmer. You're still going to die. Stop getting a tan. You're still going to die. Search for UFOs up in the sky. They might fly you to Mars where you're still going to die. A lot more of that, actually. But uh, Point taking. Your anxiety is not doing you any good. Okay, It's not adding anything to the length or quality of your life. It's just not. I just, I, just want, I just want you to acknowledge that about your heart. That's all I want. To, that's all the point that's there. Um, Jesus is saying with this, along with this, you can't add one blasted minute to your life. Why then do you worry about all the other things? This is a very gentle way of Jesus reminding us there is a God, and we're not Him. Okay. And we need to know, lastly, about our hearts that we will continue to want things. With ultimate goals and dreams, treasure, as Jesus calls it in verse 34, and they won't deliver either. And they're going to break our hearts. Tim Keller says it this way, If we look to some created thing to give us meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver, and it will break our hearts. So I need to have a little quick, don't hear what I'm not saying moment here. The first is, some of you may have heard me saying, even though I didn't say it, but I understand how you might have heard this. So, you're saying that I should be a loser. You're saying that all our striving and our work and our seeking for success is killing me and not likely to deliver the goods anyway. So then, why not just be a slacker or a loser? That's not what I said, actually. 
I think Jesus wants excellence from his people. Frankly, I want you to be excellent. I want you to be great students and great friends. Frankly, for selfish reasons and non-selfish reasons, I want us to have like the brightest, most energetic, loving, socially active, uh, and aware organization on campus. Uh, it would never actually get back to me in any way that would do me any good, of course. But actually, I think it's, I want that because I think that's the kind of life with Jesus that it, it should work out in your life in such ways. The question is motivation. Toward what end? Do you actually think all your ambition will deliver you the goods and therefore ultimately the peace and joy that you think you deserve? Jesus says, "Mm, fat chance. But if you seek to do that for His glory and for the good of others, that's a completely different motivation. Some of you may have heard me saying, even though I didn't say it, are you saying my anxiety is my fault because I care about my life and I shouldn't? I'll fudge on that one a little bit. I'm saying that I think for lots of us, maybe almost everyone to different degrees, that much of our anxiety is because our hearts, out of fear that we'll miss out, miss the cut, we're super busy trying to be successful and secure our future success and prestige and esteem and comfort that's by no means promised to us by anyone, in the hope that we'll have peace and joy and love that's by no means promised to us by anyone, when we have hearts that are way too big to be satisfied by those things anyway, that's what you should stop doing. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to live that way. You're free to stop being driven by those fears. So, uh, I'm convinced that telling you not to be anxious is like telling my six-year-old daughter who's afraid of the dark not to be afraid of the dark. That's not meant to be derogatory. That's just the way the heart works. Like, you just can't make it go away. It has to be replaced. And the Father here, Jesus, gives us something good to, to replace um, these fears with. So, uh, we've got to consider the care of the Father. We can do this quickly and then we'll be done. Uh, Jesus turns our attention from our anxious hearts to a Father that cares. In verse 24, Jesus calls His disciples to consider the ravens. Literally, stop your busy, anxious worrying and look at the darn birds. See those birds? Those birds, they're everywhere. They don't do a... He's literally saying... Literally. They don't do a blasted thing. Look at the ravens. They don't do anything. They don't sow. They don't reap. But they don't go hungry. The Father faithfully cares for them. It's like Jesus saying, every morning God the Father wakes up. He doesn't wake up. And says, got to feed the ravens today. And He's never late for work a single day. He always feeds the ravens. God the Father faithfully cares for His creation. He never misses the day. And then He goes on to talk about the Father's extravagant care. Verse 27 and 28. They're walking along. His disciples are busy thinking about all kinds of things. And Jesus says, consider the lilies. Look at the grass. Extra- extravagantly arrayed. Not even Solomon in all his glory. All the riches of the ancient world and all his beauty. People came to see him in his glory. They traveled from like other countries to see him in his wisdom and his glory. Jesus is saying, hey, it was pretty glorious, but you know, it doesn't hold a... Doesn't hold a doesn't hold anything compared to those flowers over there. This is much more extravagant and beautiful in detail in every way. Those guys don't do anything to get that beautiful. They don't do anything. They don't, they're not working. They're not toiling, waking up saying, i got to get ready this morning. They don't set aside 45 minutes every morning to fix their hair and put on their makeup. They don't do any of that. They just 
will wake up beautiful. And they grow. And, and Jesus makes the point, hey, if God cares so much to make these things so beautiful, even though they're here today and gone tomorrow, if God will take the trouble to make something so beautiful that's gone like that, how much more does He care about you? And that's where Jesus is ultimately going here. How much more? How much greater does He care for you? Verse 24, He much more values you than the birds. He never forgets them. He won't forget you. Verse 28. Consider the lilies. How much more will He clothe you than the grass and the lilies? So here we have to face this really terrible, true paradox about our hearts. We don't believe this. We don't believe God cares for us. We don't believe he'll forget. We don't believe he won't forget us. We think he'll forget us. We think he won't take care of us. We think we have to care for ourselves. We we don't understand that he cares for us much more. We undervalue his care. We overvalue the value of our anxiety. We think it'll do us good. Jesus says it does you no good. And uh, we undervalue his care. He cares for us so much. In the busy grind of work, study exams, disappointments, we're convinced that he's too busy or we're too messy or we're too unimportant for him to actually care about our lives. And so we press on and worry and stress trying to make it happen ourselves. The Father's not... He's not content to let you go on thinking that. He's out in this text to convince you that he cares. Look at verse 32. It goes right to the heart of things, I think. Fear not, little flock. I think he looks right into the hearts of people and says, Down there what I see behind all your busy, anxious striving is fear. The fear that I'm not going to take care of you and you've got to do it all yourself and no one's going to look out for you, so you've got to look out for yourself. And a father that knows our fearful hearts looks at us and, and tells us in verse 30, Listen, I know your needs. Verse 30, you see that? All the nations seek after these things, but your father knows you need them. He knows. In verse 32, Fear not, little flock, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus here is saying that it's the heart of the father to seek the good of his people, it's not just to seek the good of his people. That, that's partly it. You know, if, if you just read verse 31 and said, Seek his kingdom, all these things will be added to you, you might be like a crass pragmatist. Like, ah, well, I'm not sure how else I might get them. All right, we're going to sign the contract. I'll seek his stuff so long as he gives me his stuff. Okay, we'll do that. Uh, that's not what's going on here. Uh, Jesus is saying that the heart of the Father so delights in His people that it brings Him pleasure. It's the Father's pleasure to give you good things. It's the Father's... The Father loves to love you. That's what He's saying. The Father delights in loving you. The Father delights in taking care of you. It's His pleasure to give you what you need. It's His pleasure to give you the kingdom. All that you need for life and godliness. How do you know that? How can we know this is true? How can we be so confident of His care and His love that we cease our anxious, busy striving, trying to secure our own life and way and peace in the world? How can we know that His kingdom, uh, that this kingdom of His uh, that we're to seek will actually deliver um, on the goods, on the care, on the peace that we long for? Well, the answer here actually is pretty simple. 
to Jesus. That the one who is pleased to give us the kingdom, that's the Father, that the Father who is pleased to give us the kingdom is the same one who is pleased to give His Son for us. That the Father and the Son so love their people that Jesus the King came all the way down to live the richest life ever, the richest life anyone's ever lived. He wasn't a fool. He lived his life completely rightly, a beautiful, rich life. And at the end, he gave it up for us. So that we could have His life. We could have His kingdom. We could have His Father. We could have His joy, His peace, and His love. That's how much we can know, how confident we can be that the Father's heart's actually toward us. He gave a Son for us. I read this text last week. It's in Romans 8. I read it again. It's just as applicable. I had to strongly encourage you to pay attention. I know it's hard. I've been going for a while. This is the end. What will we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies Who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing in the world, will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Alright, I'm going to pray. Uh, Good Father, we've... uh...